back and back. Welcome to Decision, Decision Space, Space, the only podcast that takes place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the show about decisions in games. In today's episode, we're going to discuss subjective versus objective decision spaces and help you grapple with the nuance behind what we know, what we don't know, what we know we don't know, and perhaps most importantly, Jake, what we don't know we don't know about the games we play. We know what we know and we don't know what we don't know, and that's what makes us so smart. So a classic return to form as we're already getting this word soup going for a what we talk about episode here on decision space. I know many of you are excited for maybe a a return to this more philosophical waxing format. Oh no, bringing in a term from another show. Abort, abort. Before we get into the topic, we're going to talk about really quickly the games we're going to cover in the next few weeks. Uh, So our community of pre-planners, either in our Discord or on your own, you can get caught up and play those games along with us, either for the first time or to refresh yourself. Uh, next week, we'll be covering Uwe Rosenberg's classic tile-laying polyomino game, Patchwork, which is available on Board Game Arena. Many of you have probably played this one. Uh, and then we're going to be covering Teen Kingdom Builder, Donald X. Vaccarino, the designer of Dominion's uh, sort of classic tile-laying game. Uh, though Jake's going to have disagreements with that moniker, so maybe we'll save that for the Kingdom Builder show. But... Uh, Kingdom Builder actually a Spill the Yars winner, so I'm not sure it's fair that I mention it uh, sort of yoked with Dominion. It could probably be mentioned on its own, but that's how we've come to it and excited to get into those games in the future. Yeah, I've played one turn of Kingdom Builder Lifetime and I already disagree with you, so that should be a good one. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's get into speaking of disagreements about all things objective and subjective, uh, like my opinions on games, objective, Jake's opinions on games, subjective. Uh, No, let's get into the topic of the day, which is a discussion of subjective. (laughs) It's going to be one of these episodes, I see. (laughs) We're just going to jump into it. Um, But no, so today's episode, subjective versus objective decision spaces. Um, I think Jake and I, as we've been thinking about decision spaces, have been forced to grapple with in some ways that what we think decisions might be aren't always what they are, right? Our subjective view when we come in, either when we first read a rule book, when we first play a game, when we take our first turn in a game versus where we end up five games in, 10 games in, 25 games in, that perspective of what the decision space is, what the viable decision space is, might really shift. And then, of course, there's uh, what everyone is always working towards, which is getting their alignment of what they think the decision space is closer to what the optimal true decision space might be, that objective decision space. Um, So I think we wanted to have this episode to just sort of talk about the difference between subjective decision spaces, the ones we all have all the time for the most part, except for really simple games, and sort of this idea of an objective decision space and what that means. I think that's great. Um, We spoke about decision space once before as its own topic on this show, and I think we were kind of getting to some of these ideas there, but... I think the opportunity to really pull apart what's objective, what's subjective, and what things are we as players bringing to games that that make our subjective experience ours is really important to sort of understanding decision space itself as a term. So I'm, I'm excited to get into this conversation. Yeah, that was all the way back in episode three that Jake and I ventured into our first What We Talk <laughs> About episode and talked about decision spaces. So 
I have in the notes that we're going to return to that core question, which I'm really excited about. So one of the definitions that Jake and I had for what is a decision space, which I think it's really important that we set out in this conversation with firm footing in terms of what we're talking about just there, if we're going to get to subjective and objective versions. And I have here an, uh, a decision space. Oh my gosh. Totally butchered. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. A decision space is the quantity, breadth, and depth of opportunities for players in the game to make meaningful choices that affect the game and its state or outcome. What do you think, Jake? I think that's a really good definition um, to get started with. And, you know, I think the key there is this idea of meaningful choices, right? Yep. What are the choices? And, and really like the experience of how are we grappling with the choices we're able to make in a game. And, and then, of course, what separates, how can we parse out choices? What makes one choice better than another or more viable? Or, or you know, as we kind of talk about this, I think we'll be teasing out that question more and more. And I think, don't fret if you uh, are worried that Jake and I won't use game examples, that we're just going to be talking about decision spaces really broadly. I think we'll do our best to bring in game examples where we can throughout the episode, because I think it is important to sort of keep uh, the conversation sort of firmly planted within games themselves. Um, but maybe we can pivot into this sort of just talking through this difference between subjective and objective decision spaces and and what that sort of means. And then I think at the end of this first little segment, we'll talk about the idea of inner subjectivity in terms of decision spaces, which I'm even more excited about. I <laughs> can't wait. Starting off with objective decision space. So this would be the part of a game that is actually mappable, right? The actual quantifiable aspects of a decision space. And by that, I mean, what are the moves you're able to legally do in the game, uh, I think is, is probably the most important starting framework for an objective decision space. Uh, if, if it's a worker placement game like Stone Age or, or something like that, and there are seven action placement spaces, and those are the seven different things you could do on your turn, that is something that is not subjective. That is objective. That is the quantifiable boundaries of the decision space you're operating within. Yeah, absolutely. And we haven't talked about this a lot on the show, but there's this metaphor that always gets thrown around, right, of decision trees, um, which is sort of these paths that you could go down as you move through and this idea that you could literally map if you could take any game, right? We could take a, a game of patchwork that Jake and I are playing right now. That would be a really hard game to map because you have so many different viable decisions you make. Uh, at the start of a game, you get to pick, uh, there's three tiles in front of you. You could pick if you want to pay for one of them and add them to your board, great. And then you have tons of different places that you could orient them. So mapping a game like that would be really difficult. But on the flip side, a game like Spades, a trick-taking game where you have a hand of 13 cards, every turn you're making a choice between one of the 13 cards in your hand, maybe fewer if you don't lead the trick and you have some constraints around what cards you're able to play. And we could literally map sort of how many decisions you make in a game of Spades. Um, usually 13, maybe fewer, depending on the cards. So I guess usually 12, because your last one, you only have one card left. Um, and then the number of choices that you have on a turn. So we could get a sense for the actual breadth and size of a decision space. Yeah, or or even go one step smaller, or maybe many steps smaller. Um, and it might be helpful to think about this in terms of a game like Tic-Tac-Toe, uh, where you could even literally map out an entire game of Tic-Tac-Toe in your mind without too much effort, right? If I'm going, 
into the corner space, uh, my opponent is going to go into one of these other spaces. Now, if I go here, they have to go there to prevent me from getting three in a row, you know, leading to this, forcing them to do this. And because it's a game that is essentially without decisions, you know, you could just map out an entire game state uh, really simply in that way. Which I think is a really great example, even though it's so basic, to bring us to this idea that we've come back to a lot on the podcast, right? The difference between decisions and choices, which is going to be, I think, fairly pertinent for this episode. Because this idea of choices is anything that the game presents to you as something that you could do on a turn, whereas decisions represent choices that lead you meaningfully towards the positive outcome that you want, right? Like, you can make choices in a game that are objectively wrong. Uh, and those aren't viable decisions, even though they're choices within that objective decision space. Yeah. And we've talked about this a lot. And I think you know, maybe this is something we want to think a little bit about if we're using the best terminology here, since like choices, you know, you could decide to do something objectively wrong, I guess. But I like I like the I, what we used in the definition of like meaningful choices versus something else. So maybe it's more of a distinction between a meaningful choice and a meaningless choice mm. uh, where like a meaningful choice is actually advancing your ability to win the game and a meaningless choice is not. Uh, I yeah. That's really interesting. And I feel like in the context of this episode, I'm even more intrigued by this because I think a lot of the, the times as we play games, things that feel initially, uh, Things will shift over the course of our understanding of the decision space, right? The more we play a game, the more our subjective understanding of a decision space shifts. So things that I think are viable decisions or meaningful choices, uh, the more I play, I might realize that they are not meaning meaningful choices. They're meaningless choices or they're just what we've historically called choices, right? So when I'm learning the game, there might be areas of the game that I've drawn to because I think, ooh, this is really shiny. This system is going to work really well. This I have the amount of time left in this engine building game to sort of add this piece to my engine and really fire it up. And as I become more of an expert at the game, my subjective understanding of the decision space shifts. And now I know that that's no longer a viable decision within the space, right? My understanding has shifted closer to the true objective understanding of the decision space as I've become more of an expert through learning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think maybe an example of a meaningless choice that you find in a lot of games would be games that give you the ability to pass. Um, where So take uh, Arnak, for example, of a game where you can... On your turn, you sort of do one thing, uh, whether it's placing out an explorer onto an action placement space or moving up a research track, or you could pass your turn and then you'll be done for that entire round. Uh, and, you know, the game always presents you that option. That's a choice you could take, but, you know, it is objectively incorrect to do so before placing out your workers onto action places uh, in, in basically all cases. So I think that is you know, the, the option to pass and it is uh, something that comes up time and again in games. And, and very frequently, you know, you're like, well, you don't even think about that because you still have stuff you want to profitably do on your turn and you will only pass once you can no longer do that. And stuff the game doesn't give you any incentive not to do in the current right. round. There'd be no reason to ever do that without fully taking the actions in your turn. Exactly. But it says you could. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that what's sort of interesting to me here too is that our understanding of a decision space is 
in function the decision space, right? So this idea that just because a designer designs a game and sort of says, oh, this decision space is so interesting because of thing X, Y, and Z that you can do. If I'm coming into the game as a new player and I don't know about thing X, Y, and Z, and I only see this sort of whole other piece of the decision space, my experience of the decision space, my subjective decision space that I'm playing in functionally is the game, right? So for each of us, our subjective understanding of a game is the game in so much as it's the game that we're playing. And it doesn't matter if someone else's understanding of the decision space is different. If I'm playing the game and in that moment, that's the decision space that I have access to, which that seems so straightforward, but I think will become more important as we talk about how these things shift over the time and get into this idea of uh, intersubjectivity. So when people are like, this game's decision space is incredible, Maybe yes, but if it's too hard or too difficult to sort of unlock through learning different aspects of that decision space, or it's not uh, fun to unlock those different aspects, it, it cannot matter that the objective decision space is huge if accessing it is so difficult, if aligning your subjective understanding with that becomes unduly difficult. Yeah, I think another example of this coming from the other side uh, is when players, whether it's yourself or the larger community, sort of determine that one aspect of the objective decision space is not a profitable path to ever go down, mm. uh, in, in which case that also serves, right, to, to shrink the decision space of players playing the game. Um, I, I haven't played the game myself, um, but maybe this just speaks to the fact of how pronounced this belief is that I've heard in the game Gugong, I've heard it mentioned a bunch of times that there's a strategy where you could like collect a bunch of jade tiles. And I've heard from multiple sources and that that is just not viable in the game. You should really never be doing that or attempting to go down that strategy. So whether it's true or not, right, the if players who, and, and again, I haven't played it, so I'm not saying it is true, but if those players who believe that are playing that game, then their subjective decision space is is shrunk by that degree over what the objective decision space is since they're not choosing to take those jade actions. That's really interesting. That This reminds me of the conversation that we had about big kelp in discussing underwater cities. <laughs> and if the big kelp strategy where you overinvest in food early is polarizing and how that, um, that assumption, if you come into the game playing a game of underwater cities with that assumption, that becomes a lens that is filtering all of the decisions that you're making. It's completely shifting the decision space around it. So I have a question, Jake, because before we get into intersubjective decision spaces, which I think is the natural next point here, but in our use of the word objective decision space, are we using it to mean any decision that you can make within the game, or are we using it to mean any correct decision that you can make in, in a game. So in your example, just hypothetically, in the game of Gugong about Jade, I, neither of us have played it, so I, it's funny that we're using it as our example, but I think as a hypothetical, it doesn't matter. Um, is the objective decision space inclusive or exclusive of actions that you would get you all this Jade that you strategically shouldn't be pursuing? The only way it makes sense to me to even use objective decision space as a turn is if it's encompassing all possible choices. Uh, I think it just doesn't make sense to include only, you know, viable cho choices or, or uh, meaningful choices as, as we we're kind of putting it D decisions, how we put it before. It uh, doesn't make any sense because that's just such a moving target. Um, and, you know, I, 
perhaps we'll get into this more later, but if you take the game of chess as an example, is the objective decision space, I think it makes more sense to be like, that is any move you could take with any piece on the board. And if we went with the other side of the subjective decision space of viable choices, right? You know, that brings it down to potentially just one singular move of whatever the, you know, learning computer algorithm sees as the best move, right? Anything else would then no longer be a viable choice. So for us to like say that's the objective decision space, it it almost, I think that would almost like shrink too much down. And perhaps, you know, there's even should be a a separate category for like (laughs) computer algorithmically determined best move. And that's something else entirely, but that's sort of my rationale for including everything in the objective decision space when we talk about it. No, I think that's good. And I think that that's right and important. And I, I do wonder sort of like the true decision space, right? Like the difference between the objective decision space, the decision space that we perceive as people who don't understand a game state perfectly. And then once a game becomes solved, there aren't necessarily decisions left. And I, then I, yeah. What, yeah, what? I love that. It's like the platonic ideal of the decision space. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the goal of becoming an expert, right? Is like shifting your subjective understanding with that like platonic ideal. Getting as like, close to as that close. as possible. Yeah. That's the pursuit. That's the goal. Um, I think before we move on to subjective, inner subjectivity, I really want to talk about this idea of heuristic pruning, actually. Um, which I think is something that, Jake, you do a lot when you play games. So this is this idea of sort of saying, I'm going to ignore this part of the decision space for now. Um, and I will use this as a shorthand to make my decisions easier and allow me to learn this aspect of the decision space. And then I'll zoom back and use the information that I've learned about this segment of the decision space that I've focused on and honed, and then apply all of the rest of the stuff that I've been ignoring. Um, most Recently, you sort of used this in learning Praga, where you sort of said, okay, I'm just going to ignore spending gold to buy tiles that are further back in the action selection until I understand the impact of the tiles that we have. And this is just a tool of sort of shrinking the decision space that we're playing in a game uh, as a learning tool so we can get a better wrangle on our understanding of the decision space overall. Is that different to you, this heuristic pruning? Is that different in some way than just creating a heuristic that you're using as you play the game because also in praga we we sort of were like tried to come up with a a framework of categorizing different resources where like okay golden window is greater than book which is greater than gold or whatever it was as as also a way of sort of shrinking the decision space where i could say okay these two actions are the same except for this one gives me a golden window and this one gives me the book and therefore, because I'm using this heuristic framework to understand the decision space that I've created, I'm going to choose the former action. I think they're similar, but different, because I think the idea of heuristics is that in any situation, right, like if you find yourself in X game state, you should do Y, could be a common heuristic in a game, right? Um, I, I, why am I blanking on any idea of like heuristics? If you have the gold, uh, if you end up with enough gold in Dominion to to buy another gold and your deck is already functioning efficiently, uh, you should probably just buy the gold or something of that nature. I think that's slightly different than sort of saying, I'm going to not engage with this part of the decision space for now. I'm going to prune away that part of the decision tree 
to focus on on something more specifically. But I think they're so close that it almost doesn't matter. What do you think? Right. I think they're the same thing because the result is that you're coming up mm. with a way to shrink the decision space and make it more manageable for you to process. Sure. Uh, it's just, they're both just different ways of like understanding yeah. the decision space. I guess one is saying in, in in the category of you're just ignoring part of the game, you're not sort of saying to yourself like, this is best. You're saying this is the best that I can do right now with my understanding. Whereas when you've got a heuristic, you're sort of deciding like this is best in most cases. However, we say that and we're also like, there's exceptions to every rule, of course, right? Yeah. If you just followed any single heuristic in any game, in all cases, assuming it's not like a tic-tac-toe, it's like a real game, you're going to lose to somebody who also understands the same decision-making framework, but also knows when to break from that. Yeah, and knows why, yep, why it exists and when it doesn't apply totally, which I guess gets us to this idea of inner subjective decision spaces really perfectly. So this is the idea of sort of our shared understanding of a decision space. Um, so this is really important in my mind because when Jake and I sit down to play a game together, I have an understanding of what the right decisions in the game are, and Jake has an understanding of what the right decisions in a game might be given certain inputs. Um, and there's multiple things that are important about this. One, uh, the overlap of those could shape what strategies become viable within the game, right? If we're each making core assumptions about a strategy, that might enable certain other things to happen within the game. Going back to Arnak, if there's a card that Jake undervalues, and I know that, I might be able to let it sit there a little bit longer in the purchase order, take a few more turns, and purchase it later. And so I'm able to optimize my turns because our subjective decision spaces around maybe, say, the card Dog are different. Uh, I know Dog's an amazing card, and Jake feels it's just okay. Uh, that creates a, an area for me to find edge. Uh, or an advantage over him as a player, which I think this sort of idea of the ways in which our subjective decision spaces don't perfectly al align is where players might find their edge in terms of finding success in a game is really interesting. But also our subjective, dis inner subjective decision space could impact and inform what the viable meta is just because of the assumptions that we come into the game with, even if they might not be true. Um, so in a, if in a game, right, Jake, you and I come in with the assumption that strategy Y is really bad, um, that's going to just shape everything about it. And until one of us actually tries and proves strategy Y is good, um, our whole decision space is going to be warped around that assumption. And sort of the intersubjective decision space of all players who play X game is massive. And then it can come down very locally. Right. It's not always the case, but I think a lot of games right, provide an advantage to doing something differently, right? If everybody is trying to collect gold because gold in the game is really valuable and everybody thinks that's the best resource, um, then the person who's going for sheep or something along that lines, right, might get an edge uh, just by virtue of having like a monopoly of that resource or not competing for the same spaces that give access to the resource that other people are, Um and so, yeah, I think that a lot of times, as you're saying, this intersubjective decision space is just an opportunity uh, for players to find edges uh, and, and, and get an edge and get an advantage within the decision space uh, that is not a part of the objective decision space. It's like finding edge in the subjective decision space in this shared way. So I'll, can I give you an example of this? Please. So I was playing um, 
at, I was playing a Magic the Gathering draft at my friend or friend of the show, Jamie Stegmeyer's place. And at the, we were kind of all joking around the table, uh, like, wow, at the end of this draft, whoever's got, whoever's taken the blue cards is, is going to have a really strong deck because there was like all kinds of really powerful blue cards coming around at the end of each pack. And then we get to the end of the draft and realize nobody was building a blue deck. <laughs> So, <laughs> so that was, uh, you know, an amateur kind of magic draft situation. Uh, fast forward, you know, a, a month or two later, uh, and I got invited to another draft over there and clued in to last time a lot of similar people. I started taking the blue cards and, and a similar thing sort of turned out where, you know, I ended up being, if not the only, but like the only person solely in blue and then just had, a, you know, my pick of all the powerful cards at the end um, because for whatever reason, like the, the shared subjective decision space in that group was to undervalue blue cards in drafts. I think that that's super interesting. This plays out at tons of different levels um, where sort of within your local meta, you had this idea and there's a, a note here that I think you added Jake that said, yeah, I just added is, that. is intersubject decision space the metagame? And I feel like, Yes, uh, the intersubjective decision space of a given game within a community of players, whether that's a local community or sort of an online community or the sort of global community, I think the intersubjective decision space, right, our understanding of how strong certain things are is the intersubjective decision space of a given game in a snapshot in time. And then someone might sort of say, oh, but I understand how to play against this meta. I understand a implication of our assumptions as a community of this decision space that I can exploit. And then they shift the intersubjective decision space by bringing this sort of anti-meta strategy and showing that something else is viable. Yeah, I think um, Magic Gathering and collectible card games in general are just such a good case study for metagame in general because they're just the games that you know have perhaps the most people pouring the most time and energy into and, and have these huge competitive communities so yeah you're exactly right um the objective decision space for entering a magic the gathering tournament would be that any card that's legal in the format could show up and be there and and, and you would think to be prepared for that however anybody who's been you know to a magic tournament knows you're not going to see uh equal distribution of every legal card you're going to see the same types of cards over and over and over again because those are the cards that are have been shown to be most powerful or at least the understanding of players is that those are the most powerful so the metagame right the intersubjective decision space is this shared understanding about what's good and what's not so the best players and the most experienced players are not going to come prepared to face you know every card they're going to come prepared to face the specific cards, these specific sets of cards, and these specific sets of cards and specific sets of combinations uh, in order to be successful. So I think that's kind of a really clear example of the way that like shared understanding of the subjective metagame, right, what's actually viable in the game, uh, plays out across a large scale. It's really interesting that we've somehow ended up talking about the meta of like collectible card games or like TCG style games right now, but 
I'm intrigued <laughs> how we arrived here just before we were talking about heuristic pruning, this idea of like, or heuristics generally, uh, focusing on a certain part of the decision space. And something that comes to mind with talking about TCGs is like how often, even in Keyforge, right, we're sort of where certain decks are going to be much more, uh, have strong matchups and poor matchups against certain other types of decks. And you would go into a tournament, select the deck that you're going to play and sort of say, I'll be great unless someone's bringing this really wacky deck that's really unlikely to be brought. And that's sort of an example of like a similar concept in a way where it's like, this is perfectly viable as long as we're all assuming the same thing. But if I run into someone who is not assuming this thing, if they've, if they think their deck that does this sort of other thing is viable, I'm going to have a hard, a hard day. And then it instantly shifts the inner subjective decision space or your subjective decision space, even where like you lose bringing this deck that you thought was going to be a great deck given the circumstances um but someone else's subject of decision space was different and has forced you to reconsider before we move off this i really quickly want to just say thank you to krill in our discord for bringing up this idea of intersubjectivity uh it's a word that gets discussed a bunch in sort of academic circles and i think i should have done this at the start but now i'm going to be backwards and do it at the end uh i think the word comes from a scholar named thomas Sheff who defines intersubjectivity as the sharing of subjective states by two or more individuals. Uh, and this is from his 2006 book, Goffman Unboundy, A New Paradigm for Social Science. Um, so more reading on intersubjectivity there, if you're curious. Yeah, sounds good. And maybe we'll just add, you know, if you want to cite our podcast, Hansen and Friedman, 2021, uh, Interdecisional Wait, <laughs> I'm so I'm so relieved you bungled that because everyone was getting mad at us for being too academic. So the fact that that did not happen makes me so happy. Wait, I still want to do it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, well, this is as natural time as any to take a mid-show break, mid-show break to read some reviews. So. We've never done this before, but we had a bunch of reviews come in and we always like to read reviews on the show of people who kindly take time out of their day who enjoy the show to give it a listen. So we want to say thank you by reading out some of these reviews. Jake, I'm going to give you the honor after doing that lovely uh, (laughs) call to to read the first one. Okay, awesome. Um, Well, this one comes from Liminal Mastermind. They left this review on November 2nd, 2021. Thank you so much. Five-star review titled, Awesome! Exclamation point. A lot of ideas explored here are pretty seminal in the context of games, yet Jake and Brendan still manage to frame them in such a way as to make them understandable, even as someone who hasn't played many of the games discussed. Highly recommend. Thank you so much, Liminal Mastermind. I hope you're enjoying this episode and we're not letting you down. The next review is from someone called Smash Racism, and the title is Absolute Genius. Again, five stars. These episodes are always interesting and thoughtful discussions about great games. Give them a listen. Thank you so much, Smash Racism. I agree with your name. It is lovely. And I agree with your comment, which is not as important as your name, but excellent. All right. We're going to read all these, right? I guess so. And am I like reviewing the reviews? I don't know if I should review the reviews like this, but let's keep going. All right. We're we're saving this next one for last. Okay. It's the best. No offense to everyone else who's left these great reviews. All right. <laughs> this is from Joshi Zanes. Five stars. Good listen is the title. Interesting conversations about games you may or may not have heard of, as well as the larger theories and concepts in games themselves. Thank you so much, Joshi Zanes, for the kind words. And this one comes from What About Tiki? 
What about? What about KI? I hope. A great board game podcast that spend spends the time to delve deeper into each board game and look at the types of decisions you'll make while playing them. The hosts are upbeat, heck yeah, and have good chemistry, making the podcast a joy to listen to. And this one was left on Podcast Addict app, so we can see reviews there as well as iTunes. So those are kind of like the main places. And then this last one is just hilarious to me. Um, So five stars, unique content is the title, and this is from Joyce Y. Jang. And Joyce says, in a world where most board game podcasts have a similar format, Decision Space is a breath of fresh air, focusing on those excruciating decisions we love and hate in modern board games. If you're more into ideas than personalities, this is a good listen. (laughs) That's right. We have good chemistry, but our personalities are just, you know, they're not as good as our ideas, which is really, that's what I've always been going for in life. Better ideas than personality. We always love reviews. And this one, I'm not sure if it was really intended as a roast or not, but it sure comes across that way. And if you would like to roast us, as long as it's with five stars, we would love to read it out on the show. And maybe it will add to our personality. But seriously, Joyce, thank you for your review. Just on a final note on the reviews, Brendan, something really funny happened uh, on the last leg of my vacation. I was driving back through Kansas. I got to see my parents and I just was looking at these reviews and I read that one to them. Uh, and we were all laughing about it. And I said, like, well, at least it was five stars. We actually did get a one star review from somebody. So that's kind of a bummer. And my mom's like, oh, I gave you a one star review. Your mom <laughs> was, was like, the one star review? I, yeah. I was like, mom, why? <laughs> She's like, I don't know. I tried to give you a review and it just hit one star and send. And I couldn't undo it. <laughs> like, no, mom. <laughs> I can't. That's amazing. Back to the show. So with this idea of subjective and objective decision spaces, I think the sort of crux of this conversation and how we ended up talking about this in the first place is how our relationship and how how our subjective decision space changes over time, right? Like how does playing a game impact our impression of what the subjective decision space actually is? so a lot of times this is in its most earliest form. When you first read a rule book, you go through this really interesting, or at least I think many people might have this experience where you read a rule book and you're sort of like, oh my gosh, this, what is the game here? I don't even understand totally what the decision space is, but I'm going to set everything up and we'll sort of see, see how things go. You have no sense of sort of the difference necessarily between the objective decision space and the subjective decision space that is closer to the true decisions, the meaningful decisions, the viable paths within the game. Right. Yeah. And I think um, that's kind of one of the great joys of, of teaching games to people too. Um where you kind of say things like, oh, well, once we get started, you'll get this right away. Because, you know, it's, I think for whatever reason, it's just like a really difficult thing for people to understand, even experienced gamers. Like when when you learn a rule set and you learn what you can do, like why would I do this over this other thing? And it's amazing in games when we start playing and, and it comes really quick like oh now i see why i should not have done that <laughs> i won't do that again next time yeah now i see is probably a phrase that really commonly uh a company shifts in someone's subjective decision space of a game right right 
Um, I think also another important idea with this is the idea of learning curves. We sort of talked about this a little bit before, um, but this idea that the more we play, our our perception of what the viable decision space is, is going to grow or shrink potentially as that game goes on, right? You might have something where you think it's totally viable and then it becomes not viable at all, uh, or vice versa. There might be something where you don't really think it's viable, but as you become an expert in the game, you understand certain nuances within the decision space. If someone makes X decision and then I make Y decision, it's actually viable at this one point in the game that makes it a really good strategy to go down the specific path. But only if all these other pieces come together that I just wasn't able to see because I didn't have as intimate of a decision space, an understanding of the decision space as I needed to, to know that, oh, it is sometimes viable. And my preconceived notion then sort of shifts. So I think that this can be a lot of times both like what you have learned from past experiences, but also the way that the actual game itself is presenting information mm. to you. So for example, when you get uh, uh, in Race for the Galaxy, uh, depending on your starting hand of cards, that might send you down a path that you've never considered exploring before or considered viable before because you know, you've just got the exact sequence of right cards at the very start of the game to sort of thrust you down that new path. I think a lot of times this idea... Uh comes along with phrases like, this game is deeper than I realized. A lot of games present themselves really simply. Um, but if there's emergent interaction between the systems, like Reiner Knizia games come to mind, you might, as you play the game more and more, you start to realize certain nuances that make it way more interesting of a decision space than you thought at first blush. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of heuristics for how, how we think about games, um, this is like a, a big meta one about gaming, but it seems like that if you're playing a game that's like well revered and it's like a classic but very light game, then more often than not, I've found that those are decision spaces that really grow over time that you realize, wow, there's a lot more to this. And, and you know, and that's how a super light game can continue to be enjoyed for years and years to come. And I think that oftentimes um, the exact opposite of tr is true when you're looking at uh heavy games especially it seems like in in these like modern games uh that are kind of like blips right they're like really hot everybody's playing them and then they kind of disappear and i think that can be often a telltale sign of a game that at first blush right the decision space is really interesting and really grabbing uh in those first two or three plays super engaging but then you actually find the objective space or sorry, the subjective decision space shrinking over time as you realize, okay, these are really cool mechanics and there's a lot going on here. But now that I've learned what I should be focusing on, like the actual core repetitive loop is not that exciting. And I think to some extent, that was sort of how we came away from Praga, Kaput Regni feeling a little mm. bit. And a lot of the joy of those games can be the exploration of the decision space. And then once you've mostly explored it, you sort of feel done with it. Yeah, I think and it that can be, and that can be totally fine. You know, not trying to shade any game. Uh, you know, a game that gets to the table five times, and you have a great experience with it five times, and then it starts to shrink on you. Like that is to me, you know, a, a big success, money well spent. If you had five great evenings playing it, totally. I think another point here that's really I would like to mention is that games where an opponent's decisions are emphasized then the size of the decision space is largely informed by the opponent's subjective perception of the decision space, right? So if my decisions in, within the game 
matter it matters greatly what you're going to do. My ability to make meaningful decisions are impacted by how I understand you to understand the game. Um, so I can't use knowledge against you if I don't if I know you don't have that knowledge, right? So if something within a game state happens where sort of it's like, oh, the really obvious path from Jake's position here is to go down this path. It's so powerful. Every, everyone agrees that sort of when this when there's two cutters on the board, you draft them uh, if you're already in blue, but otherwise you ignore them. If I don't know that you're going to do this and I'm offered sort of the counter strategy to that strategy or a more middle of the road strategy that's good but not great, um, and we're making a simultaneous decision, if I don't understand your subjective decision space, I can't make the right decision there in some ways. Does that? I think that makes sense. And, and also the fact that uh, games that have like direct interaction, it, it, it's going to change the dynamic. I'm thinking about our experience with Seven Wonders Duel, where I was going for military basically every single time. Uh, and, you know, like it or not, that's going to change the experience of playing the decision space for you because you have to constantly be aware that okay if i flip over a military here then jake's gonna take it and that's gonna cost me gold and you know put put me this close from death (laughs) so to speak uh whereas you know playing against somebody else uh or, or me playing against you and realizing how high you prioritize science uh is really impacts my own decision making and, and what I was, you know, needed to do in order to prevent your preferred path to victory. Yeah, no, definitely. And it also just impacts my perception of how strong military is. When when Jake thinks military is really strong and goes for it all the time, I'm either going to follow suit or I'm going to form the counter opinion of military actually isn't that strong because Jake is going for it too often uh, when it's not necessarily viable within the game and it ends up seeming weak when maybe it's not, it just is specific to per- certain points in time. I don't mean to throw you under the bus, Jake. I think you beat me with military more than I beat you with science. I think this also brings us to the most important point, which sometimes I feel like on our show, we forget to go back to, uh, which is like, this is all good and f- fine, but like, what about the fun? And I think how does fun tie into this concept is that the, our subjective experience of a decision space can hugely have an impact on how fun we perceive the game to be or not, right? Uh, It's more fun to make decisions in a decision space where you don't think there's a right answer. Uh, That's when you sort of find yourself saying, this game plays itself, right? If If your subjective decision space has shrunk so much that you think you always know the viable path, even if you don't, you're not gonna have as much fun making decisions there because you don't feel like you're making meaningful decisions. This conversation is super important and I think it also gets clouded by the fact that once you get to mastery level of a game, you're doing it, you're probably continuing to play it for different reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe you're involved in tournaments on Board Game Arena or you're on the Magic the Gathering Pro Tour, if that still exists, and, and you know, you're trying to, you know, compete for actual prize money. Um, and then when you're playing a game that, to the point where, you know, it kind of plays itself. You're not thinking too hard about what you're doing, uh, but you are now playing it against somebody else who's at that same level of understanding. Like, how does that change things? Um, So, yeah, I think it's like a little bit more nuanced than just saying like, you know, once you've mastered a game and don't think it's hard about it, it's not going to be as much fun. But I definitely think the fun necessarily shifts. Yeah. Right. You're finding fun elsewhere from just the decision making. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Or there could be games where the more you play them, the more interesting the decision space becomes because you have more little things that you have the capacity to pay attention to and and understand about it that you didn't necessarily see when you were just learning the game, right? Absolutely. Do you think like, I was kind of thinking about this too, but different people have different preferences for games, like in mm-hmm. how to play games. Like you always talk about how my preference is like trying to find the most value in any given turn and your preference is more like trying to find the interesting and most profitable like combinations of cards or you know a big sequence that can make up for the fact that like I'm getting more value than you over the course of the game because now you've got this combo that's going to turn around somebody else might find their enjoyment in trying to control the game as much as possible and take away viable choices or meaningful choices mm. from their opponent down to the point where their their opponent can do, you know, ha- has only poor choices left. Um, and I think, do you think like, this might be a little bit off topic, but when we're talking about like finding the fun in a subjective decision space, I think that sometimes, I'm curious your thoughts on this, but do you think that like, if you come into a game with a certain mentality and that decision space either offers that Mm. as a viable path or not, that could be something that sort of impacts your fun in a game. I definitely think it could, especially if you assume that the game, the decision space is going to offer something. And then the more you play it, you realize that sort of what you thought the decision space was doesn't exactly align with what it is. I think that that can leave a really sour taste in your mouth, right? Like, if you come into a game like Race for the Galaxy thinking that you're going to build these uh, engines that are having these massively, massively producing huge swings with really different strategies, you might be disappointed to know that like the game does offer you really interesting nuanced engine building, but your strategy is going to feel somewhat similar. And we're talking about efficiency from like going from one VP a turn to eight, not like a 10 to 40 point gush or something. Though in that example, you're actually getting more points from the first one. But I think you get my point. Right, absolutely. And I, th- I think, um, I guess to add to that, when like different players have different kind of skill sets, right? Like there sure. are things within games that we're better at than others. And I think a lot of times, you know, if I come into a game, I'm going to like try first what is familiar to me. Mm. You know, I'm going to find my own path through the decision space with with my strengths first um and and those strengths could be very different than yours or very different than somebody else's and those are sort of things that we're bringing into an objective decision space right that makes it our own subjective decision space from the very first play yeah um yeah things we learn about different games uh where oh this decision space works in this way um and I bring that to this game and this system seems kind of similar. Maybe I'm going to pursue that. And I, f- it informs just, I've never played the game. You taught me the rules. So your subjective decision space has impacted mine. And then I've played this other game that impacts how I even see this game. So we start with objectively, sorry, we start with completely different subjective decision spaces just because of who we are in the games we've played when we end up having that first play. That's really interesting. Yeah. And I'm also thinking about our, uh, episode on race for the galaxy where we kind of realized that we had likely never got to or, or we perceived that we had never got to the game end state based on running out of the victory point chips and it had always been 
by building a full tableau of 12 cards. Um, and I think the reason for that is because like, that's just my go-to that of playing games is like, I like to rush for a win. Sure. Um, you know, in the first, maybe that comes from a lot of playing red decks in magic gathering or whatever, and just kind of like learning the kind of theory behind that and how like that can be a viable strategy of, you know, beating your opponent before they are able to really get set up and doing what they want to do. Um, and so I think that's just how I came into that game and started playing that game to where, and, you know, finding success doing it. That was just something that I just kind of kept doing every single time. It didn't take a step back to realize, wow, there's like more to this decision space. It's interesting because you mentioned the game's presentation, just how a game is published, the decisions made around that can impact its subjective decision space. And I wonder if Race for the Galaxy was if it weren't called Race for the Galaxy, would you have come into your first place sort of saying, that's the victory condition that I'm going to push for? Or because that carrot is so strongly within the center, if it was called like daddle longingly while you build an engine for the galaxy, maybe you would have been like, oh, I'm supposed to just sit around and like build a a VP engine and someone else might finish the game, but like I'll just rake in these points. I I don't know. I also, one other theory I have is that This idea of, we talk a lot about bumpers in games, right? This idea that like this decision space doesn't let you move too far to the left or right, push too far uh, in terms of what you can do, what's viable. You're always going to get it between like one and two points on a turn. So your decisions don't matter a ton. But the flip side of that is like perilous decision spaces. This idea where there's mistakes at every potential turn and you really have to make the right decisions. I think chess is like a classic example of this, right? Like where to be good at chess, you have to just learn tons of openings so you don't make mistakes early on. Um, And I think I would argue that Race for the Galaxy has a little bit of this perilous decision space going on too, where if you make some poor decisions early, you really fall off the wagon in terms of creating the potential for those engine building outcomes. And I think the fact that it's a perilous decision space impacted our subjective perception because early mistakes and not understanding why we made them pushed us towards that race out with cards and your tableau towards that victory. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I like this idea of perilous versus safe decision space as, as a whole sort of spectrum that we could use to talk about games in the future that we haven't really used much before. But when we talked about, we, you know, we got at it without specifically getting to that, I think, in our conversation about Imhotep, where, you know, we talked about, like, why it's such a great family game, because no matter what you do on your turn, you're going to be getting between, like, one and four points, right? Um, or really two and four points, basically. And compare that to, yeah, a game like chess or I know splatter games are really famous for that, where they sort of have the design ethos where like, if you can't lose on your first turn, then why have one? Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so like a game like Food Chain Magnet is super famous for having, you know, if like, uh, I think people even recommend teaching it with like the first couple turns as like part of the teach, because if people don't do specific things in the first two turns, there's just completely out of the game. Totally. I'll also say with this idea, I think it's a useful framework for looking at co-op games, um, like the sort of co-op by committee games, Pandemic comes to mind and some of the others, where the idea of this game, the game itself really is sort of, we're wrangling our subjective decision spaces together, right? We're figuring out where our inner subjective decision space lives and trying to make the decision. So the game itself is through conversation, trying to find the right path through the game and where there's tension or potentially 
uh, it's because our subjective decision spaces differ, or the quarterbacking problem is just someone taking their own subjective decision space and pushing it down to their friends' throats, right? Like, and right. that doesn't feel good either. Yeah, like choosing. Yeah, and I, I love that as sort of like a, a way to understand um, the quarterbacking problem. It's like somebody imposing their meta game onto yeah. the whole group, and that's obviously going to cause tension because like the meta game has to be a shared understanding for it to be something that makes sense at all. Um, and games are sorry. so much about just, I think to follow up on that point, games are so much about expressing ourselves through what we see before us, like in a really zoomed back way. Like I see on the table, I have all this information and then I have this passionate like thing that I want to do based on everything I've taken in. So the quarterbacking problem, is like someone else is saying my perspective matters more than you, which maybe that's really succinct and assumed, but I think it's just interesting the context of this subjective decision spaces conversation. All right. Brenda, do you have time to wrap up with giving one example each about yeah, let's uh, a do game it. that where we realized that our subjective understanding of the decision space was vastly different than what it ended up being after more exploration. Uh, so where we really saw our subjective understanding of the game's decision space change. I, I have an example queued up. Uh, do you want me to go first here? Yeah, go first. Okay, cool. So my example for this is actually a game we've talked about a lot here and, and a game that's a great you know, sort of case study for decision space in general, and it's Magic the Gathering. And mm. I have to go all the way back to, you know, when I was first playing, the first learning how to play and, you know, playing with friends as like the quintessential, you know, tabletop Magic the Gathering player where you had lands, you had monsters, you attacked, you know, maybe your opponent had some walls because the most important part of the metagame was like big 7-7 seven, seven creatures. <laughs> Um, totally and and, you know and that was how we played the game for months and you know years and until one day my friend said like you gotta fight my older brother and his counter deck and like i didn't he's like it will make you so mad and i was i just thought like i didn't even know what that meant at all in the game and so I, i sit down and start playing as alex and his counter deck and he's just countering every single thing i try to do and i like can't even believe the game works like that because it's just so fundamentally different from how I had played it before. You know, he doesn't even have creatures and and I, I can't do anything. And he just wipes the floor with me. And that just, you know, fundamentally changed my understanding of like what this game is and like what you could do to be successful and just completely blew up my understanding of the game. And, you know, and then, you know, I started exploring more and learning like, okay, there's land destruction. Like you could attack the game this other way. Uh, you could try and mill your opponent's deck to zero. It's like, oh, there's like a whole world of strategies and ways you could approach the game. Uh, and, and I think that was sort of like the moment that really made me become like addicted to magic in a big way of like what, wow, there's so much more to this than I ever imagined. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that's one of the the real draws of magic. And it's so cool that it does just link to like this, what really drew you in wasn't necessarily the first play, the first 20 plays, but was when you realized how big the decision space actually was compared to your assumptions about it as a, as a kid, 
Yeah, it's amazing. My my example is much smaller. Uh, my example is a recent one of a game that my wife and I played called Shot and Totten. This is a card game from Reiner Knizia where there's 40 games. It also goes by the name Battle Line. 40 cards. Did I say 40 names? 40 cards. Uh, and you're sort of building these uh, collections of three cards behind these 11 different locations, trying to win three of them that are next to each other or five across all of the 11 if they're not adjacent. Uh, and you sort of, the cards range in value from one to nine, and they're six different colors. So you're trying to get like a color run. If you had seven, eight, nine of the same color, that's like the best hand possible. And then there's three of a kind uh, is one below that. So you're trying to beat the hand that your opponent has against you. And I think just as Maya and I played this game, even within the first five plays, I was amazed how differently on our fifth play we were playing in terms of what information we were willing to give up, how many cards we were willing to commit to a location before we had more information about the cards that our opponent would have. Because so much of what becomes viable, because color runs are the best, becomes specific cards tend to then be jump to prominence in a game. Like, oh, the the yellow eight and the yellow... Uh, seven are out the yellow six really matters if one player has the yellow eight and seven in the same location um and it just the how much every single card i played and where i put it mattered really came to the forefront quickly and uh we're still i think experiencing that subjective shift and it's it's really fun so much of what makes games great right is is in the learning and the fun that's had there um so anyway let's close out for this episode this has been another episode of Decision Space. Thank you so much for joining us. We can be found online on our new website, decisionspacepodcast.com. Also on Twitter at DecisionSPA. I can be found on Twitter at Jake Freed. That's J-A-K-E-F-R-Y-D. And you can find Brendan at BurnsideBH on Twitter. See y'all next week for a discussion of Patchwork and the week after for Kingdom Builder. And as always, we'd like to thank Hembry for our intro and outro music. Reach out. Bye. Your mom was our one star. I thought we had a real hater. but it yeah, I know. Out. I was like, we made it. We have a hater. And I was like, nope, just me. <laughs> She's trying to push Get us Get a to real be job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. Too good.